Hi, hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those who want to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. This episode isn't specifically Catholic, though, because we're talking to evangelical theologian, philosopher, and apologist Dr. Randall Rouser on how we can talk to atheists, agnostics, and apathetic people about God. We talk about the nuns and the duns, those who have left religion for whatever reason, and how we can compassionately and appropriately and intelligently, using emotion and reason and a true Christ-like kind of love for our fellow human beings, bring those people back into a conversation about God and the church and Christianity. And how it's not one size fits all when doing apologetics or evangelizing and how it shouldn't be. And I truly think that Dr. Rouser is one of the most intelligent and compassionate and profound people talking and thinking about this right now. It was a great interview, and he has some fantastic insights, and I really hope that you're edified and interested in the topic as well. Please listen and enjoy. Dr. Randall Rouser describes himself as a systematic and analytical theologian of evangelical persuasion. He holds an MCS from Regent College and a PhD from King's College, London, and teaches historical theology at Taylor Seminary in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. He's the author of a number of books, including You're Not As Crazy As I Think, Dialogue in a World of Loud Voices and Hardened Opinions, Is the Atheist My Neighbor?, Rethinking Christian Attitudes Towards Atheism, and An Atheist and a Christian Walk into a Bar, a book uniquely co-authored with atheist Justin Schieber. Hi, Randall. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Albert. So, an evangelical philosopher, theologian, apologist, and an atheist walk into a bar. What happens next? Well, uh, probably you want to get your drink order in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I suggest that uh, if you're gonna, if if you're the Christian, you're gonna walk into the bar with the atheist, uh, unless it's really deeply against your moral convictions. You probably want to get a beer, just to uh, develop the camaraderie. I would recommend a Belgian ale, and then from there you begin to have a conversation and see where it takes you. Okay, you have you have the beer. I'd personally choose a more of a red ale. Uh, but Belgian, I can go with. I can I can deal with that. So we've got our beers, and we begin this this conversation. How do we start to build those bridges once you have that beer in your hand? Oh well, yeah. So it depends if if you guys have known each other for twenty years versus if you just met five minutes ago. And I've had both kinds of conversations. I'd say uh, if if you're just getting to know somebody. Uh, the best thing to do is to ask a lot of questions and listen. Don't make assumptions as to who or what they are. So if they describe themselves as an atheist, let them tell you what that means because people define words like atheist and Christian differently. And so you need to hear what a person means by that. And so don't make assumptions. 
and and don't be too quick to to try to win arguments. Uh, focus a lot more on building a rapport. Now, if you're old friends with a person, uh, of course, it's quite different. Then you know that person, and maybe you you have a better sense of what the boundaries are. You can use humor. You can push back a little bit more because you've got an established relationship. But if you don't have that yet, you've really got to invest the time to get to know someone and build up trust before you kind of move into the deeper issues. So you're saying don't just wait for one or two beers to jump in. You you want to start to lay, lay a foundation of a relationship first. Well, definitely. And uh, I, I guess, you know, the, one of the, the background questions is what is this conversation for? So when I grew up, um, coming from an evangelical Christian background, we were really strong on evangelism. And back in the day, evangelism meant accosting strangers in the streets with tracts. And then we began to have this change in the 1990s. There was this move toward what was called friendship evangelism, where it's really more about developing relationships. And then out of those relationships, telling people what you believe. And I think that's a much, it's an improvement for sure. What concerns me about the kind of friendship evangelism approach is it's still somewhat artificial. It, it sounds a little bit like, I don't know, I've, I've known people who were with Amway and they would invite you out for a coffee and you'd chat for 20 minutes and then suddenly they'd start talking about Amway and you'd realize, oh, that's what this was really all about. <laughs> and that really undermines a relationship. So I think that we always have to be careful that when we are seeking to cultivate relationships uh, through things like conversation and spending time together, that it's not simply about wanting to get to the point where we can tell them what we believe and why and get to convert them to our way of life and thinking, but rather allow those conversations to flow organically simply out of the value that we find with sharing life with this person. And people can tell when, when a relationship is genuine and the conversations that come out of it are genuine and organic versus when they are uh, kind of being manipulated. Right. And that's a, a great point that you make. I can remember uh, when I was in youth group doing something similar where we would, literally were going door to door. And the idea was that one of our, our outreach pastor was working on his master's thesis and he had to collect data on what people believed. And that, that was the pretense. But the reality was he wanted people to open doors so he could ask them if they knew who Jesus was. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually, I, I have I've met a lot of people who've done what you just said of, of where you have a sort of collecting survey data as a pretense in order to initiate conversations and get people talking about, you know, God, the God questions and so on. And people, again, they, they do see through that. Now, of course, you do get the occasional person that is, so to speak, pulled in by that. You know, occasionally you do get conversions and so on. But that doesn't mean that we should should normalize or, or make that sort of the baseline for best practice. You know, I, I've I've heard of people that were converted by seeing a Christian bumper sticker. Right. But it doesn't mean that I think we should all go put Christian bumper stickers on our cars. <laughs> Unless it's the one that says, look busy, Jesus is coming. Because that's my favorite. <laughs> See, now that that is a good example of, of one that has a little bit of self-deprecation to it. Right. And and so you can have some fun with that. It's the Turner <laughs> Burn ones that kind of uh, I'm less enthusiastic. With. Sure, sure. Those billboards that I know are up, repent, repent now or or face damnation. I think what you're saying about the, the relational approach and you mentioned the dangers in that, too, or the or the precautions to be taken in that. That's going to in a culture that what I think what I'm trying to say is in a culture that's less and less um, 
Christian, you, you can't just assume that somebody's going to even have an opinion on who Jesus is or on Christianity. So you'd have to begin with building a relationship with them first. Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, that, well, so they may not know, but even probably more challenging is they don't care. So right. there is this term that's become more and more popular in recent years, apatheism, which refers to, it has some different meanings, but probably the main meaning, uh, refers to people that are just not interested in the God question or in ultimate questions of, of meaning and purpose and what are we here for. They're just happy to live their lives and they don't have any compunction, any drive or interest to pursue those bigger questions. For those kinds of people, yeah, it, it is even more challenging to create the felt need, so to speak. And I would just say in cases like that, our attitude should probably not be to try to facilitate a crisis for them in which they find now the importance of the question, but rather just be in relationship with them, share life with them. And eventually they probably will get to those existential moments where they are ready to ask those big questions. But but that is a challenge right there. I would just want to come back to again to to be being careful that we're not facilitating relationships in a disingenuous way to make conversions but rather that uh, what we think about god and christianity is just a natural outflow of who we are and that we want to share important truths with those we value and love and care about whether that happens to be our religious beliefs or our political beliefs or our beliefs on our, what our favorite music or food is or anything else that we just naturally want to share things that we value and think are important and true with other people. Yeah. I think that's so important to underscore that. And I appreciate that you do that because I know for myself, I've run in many different faith circles in, in the Christian sphere. And there, there are some, some circles you can run in where there's a sense that if you aren't converting people, if you aren't actively evangelizing and quote unquote, like winning souls, that there's something lacking in your faith that isn't really, you're not really practicing your faith in a true way. So I like how you underscore the, the fact that these relationships need to be genuine. We can't be manufacturing relationships just to hope that people uh, become Christians, right? Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, there's that old saying attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach at all times when necessary, use words. I don't know whether he said that or not is less important to me than the truth that it conveys, which is that we should be living out our convictions even more than we speak them out, that they should just be naturally part of who we are and allow people to ask those questions uh, when they arise. I mean, there is sort of that idea that we all would ideally love people to come up to us and say, there's something different about you. What is that? And I don't know how often that ever happens, but it would be great if that did happen more. If people would just look at us and say, there is something different about you and, and invite the conversation rather than have us trying to facilitate it. Right. I find the same thing with, I, I often sit around at, at work and, and at the park with other parents hoping somebody will just talk about philosophy with me. Like somebody want to talk about philosophy or theology, but no, no one ever naturally does. Yeah. But hey, maybe, maybe if I begin to, to, to chat with those people and get to know them, get to know their interests, I might step out of myself and find that we have other things in common maybe. And hey, maybe it will come around eventually to topics that I am deeply interested in later on, right? That may happen or it may just end up that you 
keep talking about the weather and <laughs> your favorite sports team, who knows. But Right. Because I, I do recognize these days it's kind of uh, conversation partners on uh, topics like philosophy and theology are rather few and far between. <laughs> you have to almost hang a sign around your neck and walk around hoping somebody engages you. But then perhaps you might, you might uh, not uh, find the most savory or uh, uh, amenable conversation partners perhaps if you're looking too hard. You know, back in the in the 1980s, when I when I was uh, in high school, I I had a what was called a living epistles T-shirt, which um, so so these would be T-shirts that w- they would be meant to be evangelistic, but they kind of like have cheap puns and stuff. So mine would look like an ACDC T-shirt, so this you know old Australian heavy metal band, but it said instead of ACDC, it said JCDC, and then underneath it said Jesus Christ Divine Current. So then I would wear that around and look to start up conversations. I don't know that that was very successful, frankly, but uh, you could get a shirt today that had some kind of philosophy statement on it or something and maybe was a little less cheesy. And that might actually be more uh, successful at cultivating conversations. And I would say this, I mean, if you really want to seek those conversations out, rather than spending time in the park, you're probably better off spending time at a trendy coffee shop near a university. <laughs> That's interesting. And there are a couple of universities down this way here. Um, do you do you miss the what would Jesus do bracelet phase? Because that would have been, that was always a conversation starter. Yeah, fortunately for me, I missed that. That was, I think, late 90s. And I had already moved beyond Christian merchandise by that time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you missed out. I think that was probably just near the tail end of when I became Christian. That was probably just, I, I probably jumped on that bandwagon as it was riding off into the sunset. But I was very excited, I remember, to get my first bracelet. And I I do remember once in university, uh, the Campus Crusade for Christ, which I think has changed their name since to something a little less aggressive. Yeah, they're in Canada they're called Power to Change. Uh we they had a campaign on campus uh one year where everyone they wanted to get this free t-shirt that said something about what would Byron do or something or something about Byron and it turns out there was this guy named Byron in Campus Crusade who was a Christian and so the shirt was made and everyone wore their shirts in the same day. So hmm. what one day out of the school year bunch of us were wearing these green bright green t-shirts that said like who is byron on it or something to that effect and and it was meant to get people to approach you and ask you well who's who's byron why is everyone wearing these t-shirts or if you googled it i think you'd find out who this guy was and and it was meant to get people asking questions about well who's byron and then well byron's this christian dude on campus and then it's meant to lead people to ask questions about well what's christianity all about and who's jesus and it was one of these viral marketing campaign things before viral marketing was what it is today. But it was this idea of getting the conversation started, trying to to jumpstart that. But again, I don't know how effective that kind of thing is when you aren't really building a relationship, right? You're kind of asking the question and there there's no no follow-up, no follow-through afterwards. Yeah, I, I think that we could, rather than focus on what Byron did, we could maybe look at what Paul did in Acts 17. I, I thought he had a really good approach, right? When he would go into the synagogues, he would reason with them from the scriptures. Sometimes, like in Thessalonica, beginning of Acts 17, they drove him out of town. Other times, like in Berea, they carefully weighed what he had to say. Uh, and then he goes on and he's in, in Athens and he's among pagans and he has a different co- approach completely where he begins with, 
well, here's a statue to an unknown God, and I'm going to tell you about that God. And then he quotes from their Stoic philosophers in order to win them over as an audience. And I thought that, that there's a lot in, in what Paul does that I think is quite interesting. I don't know if, if we're all confident to do the same things that he did, nor that maybe we should try, because what he does isn't necessarily a model for every Christian. But for some Christians, it is. I'll say when I lived in London, England for a few years when I was doing my PhD, we would go down to Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. And so there the guys would get on their stools and they just start bellowing out at the top of their voice. And soon they'd collect around 50 people around them, including you'd always get hecklers. And so the Christian evangelists and the Muslim evangelists would be trying to shout each other down. And um, very far from the heart of where I am these days, but probably back in the 80s, I really, really looked up to that mode of evangelism. That's an interesting approach all over again, right? I know that there's there's some revival of that kind of evangelism, I think, in in Catholic circles here in North America, where the but but the attempt is shifting not to stand on a soapbox and yell at people, but to operate just these prayer stations, so a more passive kind of evangelization. So it's still a kind of a kind of street mission, but instead of you know, yelling things at people or, or talking about your position on top of a, of a soapbox or a milk crate or something on the street corner, you are providing the opportunity for people to come and hear you one-on-one, right? Through, or, or, or to hear your message or to receive what you have by being prayed for one-on-one versus you just spreading that uh, carte blanche to everybody who's just walking by. You know, it just gets me thinking of, um, it's been years since I, I, I read uh, Donald Miller's book, Blue Like Jazz, uh, popular, I guess, progressive evangelical Christian writer. Yeah, yeah, I remember that book there, well. Yeah, so there's this, this story about having this confessional booth and inviting people walking by to come in and, and share their thoughts on things that they had done. And the interesting thing about that approach is it's not beginning with, here's some information I have for you and I'm going to tell you. Rather, it begins with inviting other people to share their story, uh, which kind of, I think, brings me full circle back to the conversation in the bar uh, and the context of inviting people to share their story rather than thinking, I I always have something I want to give to you. Um, Begin by giving other people the floor and learn something of who they are and build the trust with them and allow them to share their story, and then they get to the point where wanting to hear more from you. And you can then more effectively share what you have to say with them based upon what they've already told you. I remember reading that that book too, uh, and that that scene being very uh, powerful for me as well. And you make a very good point there that, that in that situation, you're inviting a person to tell their story first. You aren't the one jumping in to tell what you have to say. I think you already... You already did talk about this, and this is something I wanted to ask you about, but I think you may have already addressed it, is what about the the agnostic who isn't necessarily interested in this kind of conversation? And I think you did already cover that a little bit when you talked about how, how we talk to those people. Um, is there anything else to, to add on that idea of somebody who isn't necessarily going to come out and say, no, I don't believe in God, but somebody who's more just apathetic about it? Yeah, so again, uh an agnostic would be somebody who doesn't have any belief as to whether God exists or not. But agnostics can be all over the spectrum in terms of their interest in the topic. Um, apatheist, again, is the, is the word for people who are just not interested in the topic at all. And again, I, I would think that, um, you know, for example, like I've, I've sometimes have had glue and I've been trying to glue two different items together 
So I'll put the glue on the one and then press it up against the other one and wait for five minutes. And then I pull back and they haven't stuck together at all. Okay, so it turns out that glue is not going to bond those two items together. It would be foolhardy for me then to add more glue and try that process again because it's just not going to work. And some people are at that point where something is not going to stick with them. So they're just not interested in having those kinds of conversations. And if you keep trying to have more glue and press it together, you're just going to alienate that person and you won't have a relationship with them anymore. So I think that we have to be discerning and to uh, be looking for people who are interested in those kinds of conversations in order to have them. And if people aren't, if they do just want to talk about the weather or about sports or something else, then, then that's where you keep that conversation. And you maintain the relationship, right? Rather than just trying to push something that you think as important as, as faith or, or our salvation or, or the eternity is, right? You maybe set that aside for a little bit to focus on building and maintaining that relationship in a genuine way. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the relationships with other people are values in and of themselves. Uh, we are made who we are through our relationships with others. Uh, the old saying that turns Descartes on his head, Descartes famously said, I think therefore I am. I think it was John McMurray, uh, the 20th century philosopher who said, you are therefore I am. In other words, I am defined not as an individual's thinking substance on my own. I'm defined through my relationships with others. So when we develop relationships with others, whether or not we talk about theology or God or something else like that, we are nonetheless formed in our shared life with one another, and we become more fully human in those relationships. And that is an intrinsic value in and of itself, irrespective of whether we ever get to talk about doctrine or God. Right. So elevating that, or an elevated sense of the importance of that the relational aspect, rather than uh, making that just a, a, a byproduct or a sideline of wanting to tell them about Jesus or about how excited you are about faith or to talk to them about the the first or last things are these important faith issues. Amen. Exactly. <laughs> I was at the uh, the park this morning before this uh, this call run now, and I saw an interesting ha thing happening, and this really reminded me of. I think what your approach would be to evangelization and to the the atheist friend or the agnostic or the um, apathetic friend. And what I saw happening was this this mom and her and her baby or her kid, uh, toddler, and it, we had this great big play structure. Um, and what was happening was she was lifting him from one section of the play structure to the other. Uh, up every time, up all these big levels. And then at the top, there's a slide, the big curly slide you go down. And at every level, he would cry and he would shout and he would kind of stomp his feet. And he got higher and higher. And she's pushing him up every level. He didn't, he had no interest in going. He wasn't excited about the slide. He really didn't seem to be into the activity. And he got to the top and he just stood there crying and crying and crying. And then, uh, came down the slide and was crying and crying and crying. And he obviously had no interest in the slide. And I, and I, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. I have kids of my own and know what it's like to parent. But I thought of this as an interesting analogy of how we approach evangelism. Cause it seemed to me like this kid wasn't ready to climb the next level, but he was being boosted up each time. And each time he kind of protested and he eventually went down that slide, which was the end goal of climbing the play structure. 
but he didn't enjoy himself and he didn't want to go back up again. Do you see did you see that as an analogy a little bit to the idea of maybe our the over evangelization that we sometimes uh, tend towards? That's certainly a valid analogy. Another analogy that comes to mind uh, is when you're baking a cake, right? You don't want to keep opening the oven door or um, taking it out too soon because uh, then maybe it won't rise or uh, you're just going to mess it up in some way. So you have to wait until the cake is ready to be taken out of the oven. You have to wait until your child is ready and interested to climb up to the top of the slide. I mean, the key to remember as well, um, if you take that cake out early and people have it, it's going to leave a bad taste in their mouths and they won't think positively about cake in the future. And if that kid gets forced up that slide before he's ready to go himself, he might for years have an aversion to slides because of that first encounter. And if you as a Christian want to push your beliefs on somebody else, then they, again, they may be averse to Christianity for years because of that one negative experience they had with a particular individual. Right. And that's, that's a great point you make because that's, that's pretty important, right? I can think of people, much to my, my shame, I suppose, in high school who I tried to say over evangelize. I, I was opening that oven door too many times and those people really didn't embrace Christianity in the way that I hoped they would because I probably pushed them too hard too soon. Uh, and, the impression I gave them of Christianity was this half was this half baked, if you can put it that way, this half baked version of Christianity that, when they tried to eat it or embrace it, left that awful taste in their mouth. Right? Yeah. To to even take it to the next level, I recently wrote an article, uh, and I cited an example from a well known writer named Barbara Ehrenreich. She's um, a freelance writer, journalist, and she's written many books over the years. She's also an agnostic or a skeptic, comes from a skeptical background. And in one of her books, I think it's called The Searching for a Wild God, she begins the book by talking about how she never throughout her life considered the possibility of God or religion as a serious question. And then she explains why. That um, her great-great-grandmother, I believe it was, in the late 19th century had sent for the priest to come and deliver last rites as her husband was dying. And instead of coming out to the countryside where she lived, he sent a rider out with a, a note saying he would come for the fee of $25, which she didn't have. And then eventually her husband died. And she swore off the church at that point. More than a century later, her great-great-great-granddaughter now, Barbara Ehrenreich, comes along. And because the church or, or their family, I should say, from that point on had become skeptics and atheists and agnostics, had nothing to do with organized religion including Barbara Ehrenreich. And so now, more than a century later, she reflects she never considered the question of God a serious question because of what this priest had done in the late 19th century. Now, that's a sobering thought, to think, what might I do in my interactions with people today that might turn off a century's worth of descendants of that person from even considering Christianity? Uh, it sort of puts things in perspective. Yeah, well, that's a really incredible story to think about that. And I guess the, I guess the hope for us maybe is that it would, it does work, work both ways, right? Fortunately, yes, or, or I guess it's the blessedly yes. <laughs> uh, the, the, the cup is half full side is that we can, of course, impact people for generations in a positive way based upon the lives that we live. Uh, so I would just simply say that the challenge then is to say this, to recognize that the stakes are always high. 
and to be considering how we interact with other people and how the repercussions of what we do might, uh, to quote Russell Crowe from Gladiator, might echo into eternity. I've heard this approach too. And I think this is similar. Say people who believe in flat earth, right? You're not going to convince me ever to believe in the flat earth theory if you just keep hammering me with different flat earth facts or different uh, pieces of evidence or or what have you, if I'm not in a place to even care about flat earth theory or what, what shape the earth is, does that, does that speak to uh, the idea of talking to unbelievers or non-believers uh, about Christianity? Yes, but I think that there is an important distinction that you've introduced here. So what we've somewhat been talking about to this point are people who are not that interested yet in the conversation but what you've now introduced is an important second category of people. Uh, these are people that they may just not be in a place to consider Christianity a live option. So that was a term that was used by William James, the philosopher. He talked about live options of belief. So while there are an infinite number of things you could believe about the nature of reality, only a small subset of them are live options at any given time for any one of us. Most of them we kind of dismiss out of hand as not serious. And for many people today in the West, increasingly Christianity is dismissed out of hand as just not serious. It's not a live option for belief. This brings us back to what are called plausibility structures. According to sociologists of knowledge, we have background frameworks of belief that we assume in which, and relative to those frameworks of belief, we judge various truth claims to be plausible or implausible. So uh, the flat earth is an example. Another example uh, that I like to give is 9-11 conspiracy theories. So I've had conversations with people that are 9-11 conspiracy theorists. I was not in a place myself to consider 9-11 conspiracy theories. In other words, the idea, for example, that the Twin Towers were brought down as a result of an internal government decision, that the government brought down their own buildings in order to justify certain geopolitical moves they wanted to make in the Near East. Right. I was not in a position to consider that a live option. But I had an interaction with, with one guy, and he right away started hitting me with all the kind of facts that you described with a young a flat earther. So he says, well, but Tower 2, there were traces of nanothermite found in Tower 2, which is an accelerant explosive and would have brought the tower down, and it shouldn't have been there, and that's evidence that it was an inside job. And then he went on and gave me all these other facts or alleged facts, none of which I could refute. But the important thing to recognize is I didn't come away from that conversation thinking, wow, he had some interesting arguments and evidence that I now need to consider. I rather I went away from it thinking, wow, that guy's uh, kind of crazy and a little bit crazy. Uh, and that was because I was not in a position yet to consider 9-11 conspiracy theories as among my live options of belief. So what he would have to do is to till the soil a little bit and invest in the time of trying to create it uh, in me uh, to revise my plausibility framework so I could come to see that as a live option. And I think we need to do the same thing sometimes rather than jump in with arguments or evidence. So you're Catholic. So, for example, an argument for transubstantiation of the communion, communion elements, what you'd want to do is get a person to the point of considering you know, God exists, right? And then that's a live option. And then the Catholic Church is the fullest revelation of God's will for humanity. And once you get people to that position, then you're they're in a fuller place to consider some other claims as live options of belief. 
Right. I've heard you, I'm not sure where it was, but I've heard you use the analogy of taking something from a storage locker, right? You don't, you can't get that thing in the very back of the locker unless you first move the things in the way. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah. So, so f- uh, for that illustration, I said, so imagine you, your beliefs are like a bunch of different items in a storage locker and the storage locker is like your whole system of belief. Well, the, if somebody asks you, can you get the, the lamp? Well, if the lamp is in the front of the storage locker, you, you won't have any big objection to getting it. You'll just go ahead and get the lamp. But if the lamp is in the very back of the storage locker and you have to pull everything out to get at the lamp, then you're going to try to come up with some excuse as to why uh, you don't actually have to change that lamp or get that lamp. And analogously, there are certain beliefs we have that are relatively trivial and we can change them without much evidence or thought. Other beliefs we have are very core to who we are, and they connect with many other things, and they're like the items at the back of the storage locker. In order to change those beliefs, you have to change all these other beliefs. And in that case, we're going to be very resistant to changing those beliefs, just like we're resistant to getting the lamp out if it's at the back of the storage locker. So if somebody wants for me to change my worldview on that issue, they've got to commit to the long-term attempt to persuade me and change my mind. And it's, it's not a short thing. It takes some time and effort. Yeah, I can't just come at you with either evidence for a flat earth or evidence for transubstantiation if I haven't spent the time to lay any kind of groundwork or till the soil, like you say, right? I can't pull up those foundational things or or attempt to move your, your worldview on any of those things uh, without putting in some work at the, at the very root of the thing first, right? Yes, and... Uh... So one of the challenges with that in mind is, is that for many people, it's not just that transubstantiation is is implausible or outside one's live options, but even the idea of God's existence is outside of their live options of belief, that they consider the idea of God to be absurd. So th- there was a book published 14 years ago now called uh, The Gospel According to the Flank Spaghetti Monster, and uh, rather than talk about God, it talks about the flying spaghetti monster, and it was meant initially to be a satire of intelligent design theory. So the idea being, well, if you can invoke God as an intelligent designer, why not invoke the flying spaghetti monster? But pretty quickly, this this flying spaghetti monster idea took on a life of its own, and it became not just a critique of intelligent design theory, but a critique of religion and belief in God more generally. So that today it's not uncommon to meet skeptics and atheists who believe that belief in God, even in a very technical philosophical sense or in a very minimal sense of some higher intelligence or something, that is as plausible to them as belief in a flying spaghetti monster. So uh, this means that we have to do a lot more work for those people in order to get them even to the point of considering belief in God as an intellectually serious option prior to arguing for God's existence. Right, because that kind of shortcuts all the history of the philosophy of religion and theology, right? To, to just hand wave that away or poo poo that away as not even being an important pursuit if you can just substitute God for a flying spaghetti monster, right? Yeah, yeah. It's um, the technic- one of the technical terms is a reductio ad absurdum. So the idea being that they want to grant, for the sake of argument, that God is a legitimate form of explanation, but then they would say, well, if God is, then the flying spaghetti monster is as well. But the flying spaghetti monster is clearly an absurd belief, so God is a clearly an absurd belief. That seems to be kind of the reasoning that's often going on. I think it's a terrible line of reasoning, but I also think we have to recognize that people do come to theistic beliefs often with those assumptions. 
So we have a lot of work to do before we kind of jump into the main event of our arguments. You talked about um, that one illustration of somebody's, you know, great great grandmother having an experience with religion that that then those ripple effects down through the generations where it becomes a point where it isn't even a live option to consider belief in God. How would that, and then I guess something, another aspect would be uh, our emotions, our human emotions. How would how would those play into willingness to be open to a conversation about God? And how do we talk to um, somebody who's not a believer, who's either an avowed atheist or just agnostic or just apathetic, how do we talk to a person considering those emotions they may have attached to religion or to Christianity or to God? Well, the emotion part is, is um, I, I guess the one thing I would want to say with respect to emotions is that for the Christian apologist, uh, IQ is important, but EQ is, is equally important. In other words, your emotional quotient, your ability to read the emotions of other people, to read uh, and to understand sympathetically why they have a particular view, why they have a particular reaction to something, that is critically important. In fact, it may be more important than IQ to have people who are emotionally wise and can interact compassionately with other people is probably even more important than being able to rebut and form your own arguments. Um, so with, with that in mind, I think that we should always listen again to the stories that people have to tell invite them to share their story. And that's going to really help us to understand why they're coming from a particular angle. Uh, you know, if, if a particular person, they were betrayed by a, a Christian that they deeply loved and respected, um, then that is obviously going to shape something of their own skeptical view. And sadly enough, the church has more than its share of casualties and more than its share of skeptics that we have to take ownership of uh, because we have failed uh, in that regard. So I think that we always need to be listening to where the people are coming from and to appreciate that that emotion as well. It, it's not contrary to reason. Emotion often can be in service of reason. Sometimes it can obscure reason as well. But but emotion in, uh, in and of itself is not a bad thing. It just depends on how we are applying it. I was literally at a bar one time with an agnostic, and our discussion wasn't very fruitful. And I felt like we were kind of often talking in circles, maybe. And I felt like the arguments I was being presented with or or his side of the discussion was often these uh, straw man versions of real Christian, of Christianity. So what he was present presenting was maybe the weakest versions of of Christian apologetic arguments. So, you know, things like the problem of evil or suffering or objective morality what I was running into is a lot of weak presentations of of our faith, and then that he would kind of knock over really easily. One of my favorite theologians is Thomas Aquinas, who I think was kind of famous for the idea of steel manning an argument, so presenting what I think was the best version of his opponent's argument. And I wonder if you can talk a bit about the difference of those things and maybe how we can be more effective in understanding uh, a non-believer we're in relationship with by by trying to understand this st a steel man uh, version of their perspective. Yeah, so uh, straw manning is an informal logical fallacy that involves taking a weak version of an argument, presenting the weak version, and then rejecting the argument based upon your weak version of the argument, which, as you said, is what you were encountering in this individual. Steel manning is the opposite. It's attempting to present your 
interlocutor's argument in its strongest possible form and then showing why there are still weaknesses in it. And as you said, Thomas Aquinas himself, through the method of disputation, focused upon this kind of argument where he would begin with uh, presenting all the arguments for the view that he's ultimately going to argue against. But by the end of that first section, you're like, yeah, I'm with you, Thomas. This makes sense. And then he says, I answer that. And then he gives a response to every one of those arguments and then gives his own arguments for his view. And so through this way, you end up with a really rigorous pursuit of truth. Now, I think that this is something that is every Christian should do, that we should uh, set aside the straw manning, because for one thing, straw manning just undermines your credibility to others. If you straw man, then what you're really saying to them is, I'm not really concerned with pursuing truth at all costs. Rather, I'm concerned with trying to win an argument at all costs. And if you do that, then you've lost your audience. So you could win a battle but lose the war. But if you uh, steal man, then what you are doing is saying, this is the strongest version of your argument, and yet this is still why I disagree with it. And I'll, I'll tell you, I, many times I've, I've presented atheist arguments for the atheist I was arguing with in a way that they said, hey, that's even better than I put it. And I, I take that as a compliment, that I'm taking their views seriously, and I want to try to understand their views as best I can, and yet still show why I end up disagreeing with them. I'd like to, to give an illustration of this. Uh, so in this famous movie, Miracle on 34th Street, Chris Kringle, Santa Claus, he comes and he ends up working at Macy's department store as the department store Santa. And then the parents come and the kids come and the kids, of course, sit on his knee and he's supposed to get the kids to buy toys at Macy's. But if Gimbel's, the competing department store, has a better price, then Santa will tell the parents they can get the better price for the toy at Gimbel's. And when the manager at Macy's hears about this, he is outraged. Santa Claus is sending people to their competitor that makes no sense. And he's about to fire Santa Claus. Except then some parents come up to the manager and said, your Santa Claus is wonderful. He keeps telling us where the best prices are. And because of that, we will be Macy's customers for life. And this provides now a new understanding for the manager. He realized he may have lost a sale, but he's won a customer. And when we steal man others, what we might end up doing is losing an argument in the moment, but we end up winning the trust of people. And I suspect in the long term that is going to be far more conducive to our success as apologists if we try to present the views of others in the strongest form possible. Right. That's a great that's a great illustration. We don't we don't want to be in, engaged with people, like you've already said, just for the sake of convincing them of our point of the argument. We want to build these genuine relationships with people for the sake of the relationship and so that through through our living in relation with them, hopefully that opens a, a door to being able to talk about our faith and being genuine with, with who we are and leading a person to understand, say, the, the meaning and purpose of their being here. But maybe that won't happen and, and we can't worry if that that doesn't happen but we also don't want to like you're saying here we don't want to in dialogue with them be be uh characterizing their arguments in in the weakest terms and i don't want to win an argument on the cheap um and i i um i just tweeted the other day a tweet where i said something to the effect of if, if you think that there are no ar good arguments against your view, then you probably don't understand your view well enough. Because the, the more that you understand a particular view, 
about any big question, any perennial question of debate, where there appear to be reasonable people on the other side of the question, it's probably because a person can reasonably disagree with you. So when it comes to some of these big questions, like the problem of evil, for example, that you mentioned, or, you know, the rationality of faith, or, uh, you know, the question about how to make sense of the Trinity, or the incarnation, or the existence of God, when we realize that there are reasonable people on the other side of all of these questions, then it has to force us back. Do I really understand the objections to my view well enough? And do I understand well enough the arguments for the contrary view if I still think that these people are just obviously missing something. Because the reality will come about, I suspect, that in most cases at least, we will come to see that there are points where people can reasonably disagree with us. And once you recognize that, and you can present the arguments against your view as strongly as possible, and yet still hold your view, I do think that will make you a far more credible and effective apologist. Right. That's really important to underscore. I've heard too you um, in a couple of debates that I've listened to of yours, um, and I think you probably probably agree with this: the idea that a debate isn't necessarily the place to move a person's worldview. Is that fair to say? Well, it brings us back to that storage locker illustration, right? If if um, it's going to take a lot to take you to convince you to remove that lamp if it's at the back of the storage locker, well, it's also going to take a lot to convince you to change your beliefs. So, you know, about basic worldview issues, that's not the kind of thing that's going to happen in a in one two hour debate. But, you know, a two hour debate may be something like uh, Christian apologist Greg Kochel gives an illustration of putting a pebble in a person's shoe. Hey, a little pebble is not going to trip them up right away, but eventually it's going to become to bother them. They're going to have to take their shoe off and take a closer look. And, and that's maybe something that you can do in a debate is put a pebble in someone's shoe and just get them thinking about something. Right. And that's brilliant. And I think you said something similar. That's what I was coming around to. I've heard you say in debates before, you've opened up debates with kind of this genuine expression of of humility and a genuine hope that you've expressed that people there would really think about what you're saying and hope to, that you hope to shift their worldview and not just win the argument. And so I was wondering that that coupling of logic and reason in the debate and the and if it's say on the existence of god it's very logical and reasonable and rational arguments you're presenting but you've managed to do it with this very christ-like love for those you're in dialogue with so could you speak to the importance of holding all those things kind of together the logic and reason but also doing that with with a, a love for for Jesus and, and the message at, at its core? Well, there is this passage in First uh, Peter 3.15. People often consider it to be the locus classicus for apologetics, the most important text in the Bible, where Peter says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within. So that's the point of, of reasoning. That's where you get the word apologia or apologetics from, to give a reason. But then he says, but do so with gentleness and with respect. And if that is at least as important as giving the reason itself, if you give a reason, but you do it and you're a jerk, then you're going to get what is called the backfire effect, that people will be even more hostile to, to you than they were before. So ironically, apologetics, if it is done with a lack of love and charity for others, it will have the opposite effect, the, the effect of alienating people. But if you do it with gentleness and with respect, then that is, is really going to, I think, be much more 
valuable in, in attracting people to consider your arguments more fully. Uh, I just did a kind of an informal survey where I asked people of which of these qualities is most important in an apologist. And I said, humor, humility, or kindness. And uh, humility won by, by a significant margin. Um, but I mean, that I would say that doesn't mean that kindness is not important or that humor is not important. I think they're all important. But probably the single most important one I would suggest is intellectual humility, is to recognize our limited perspective that we see darkly is through a glass. The irony is that when people appreciate you as a humble person coming to this with a critical open mind of intellectual humility, that will draw people. Uh, now, I do think that if you can use humor uh, and try not to do so right in a manufactured way, but if you can be maybe a little bit self-deprecating and have some jokes and so on, that always breaks tension. And if you can show kindness to others, I think those are all really important virtues that help to to facilitate a very appealing, attractive, winsome presentation of Christianity. That's such a good point. And I note that you don't include uh, having a, a sharp intellect or having this razor sharp ability of logically reasoning in any of those questions that you asked in that informal survey, right? Yeah. So but it's, it's, again, it's not that that's unimportant, but I just wanted to, to focus on what I would call the supplementary disciplines to apologetics. So if, if the reasoning is sort of at the center of what Peter says, the gentleness and, with, and, and respect is still core to what it is. Maybe give, I'll give an illustration. So if you think about a car, uh, you can think about the engine as being like the argument that pulls you forward, but the tires are like the gentleness and respect that give you traction. Right? If, 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 um, if it's really icy outside, and you have summer tires on, you're just going to spin. It doesn't matter how good your engine is, you're not going to get anywhere. And so if you have gentleness and respect, that's giving you your good winter tires. That's going to give you traction with other people so that they'll be able to hear the arguments and now you're going to get somewhere. That's a good, that's a fantastic analogy. So what I'm thinking is the, the we frequently have Jehovah's Witnesses visit us at our door. We've made a bit of a relationship with them, although I suspect it's maybe a bit one-sided because what happens is they come to the door and this woman brings her Bible and is kind of quoting random verses at me. And it seems as if whatever my response might be, uh, it's just the next verse comes out. There's no opportunity for dialogue. There's no opportunity. And the funny thing is that I agree with most of the things that I'm being presented with. I, a question might come up like, do you believe that your soul is eternal? Do you believe that we'll inherit the earth when we die? And I'd say yes to these things. I'd agree to these things. Um, but then we're off to the next verse in this presentation. And there's no, there's no relationship being built there. There's no opportunity to listen to my, my answer or my perspective. It seems like this might be, um, this style of evangelization might be kind of the least effective, the opposite of what, of what you would think would be an effective way of evangelizing. Is that fair to say? Yeah. When, in my interactions with Mormons or with, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, I mean, I try to say, okay, what am I going to be able to get out of this in order to leave a pebble in their shoe? And I often find that what happens when you raise an objection, then what you describe kind of kicks in is that they go off to the next topic. So I, I think it's helpful to maybe kind of in advance be prepared on a particular question, like the question, who is Jesus? And according to the New Testament, who is Jesus? Uh, is, is Jesus just the mere creature that Jesus is described as in 
in, in Mormonism or in Jehovah's Witness theology? Or is, is Jesus the Son of God, uh, the Word, the Eternal, who existed with God before the creation of the world, the one that Thomas refers to as my Lord and my God? Uh, that's that's where I would, for example, where I would keep coming back is to say, to, to be ready for what their interpretations and arguments will be, and then to come back with them so that we leave with them that one issue. Well, who is Jesus? And does my religious framework give me an adequate understanding of who Jesus is? Because the challenge is it can become nailing jello to a wall, right? If people are going to keep moving on to the next thing, another verse, changing the subject. So rather than, uh, than, than get pulled into an endless discussion, I think I would often want to focus on those particular one specific question and try to get a get at least them questioning on that one question. And again, it sounds like I'm having to do a bit of work to uh, not necessarily steel man their perspective, but at least to learn a bit about what they would understand before I can just go and shove my opinion or my uh, theology back at them, right? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I think that we need to be fair with, with the views of other people all the time. But with a Jehovah's Witness, I mean, within that context, I think that, uh, that they are already ready, pretty focused on steel manning their own view. So while you don't want to caricature it, you want to present it fairly and understand it well. But you don't, I don't think, have to invest time in trying to make it look as strong as possible. I think they will do that for you. Right. And then you can simply work on on providing a critical response and hopefully leaving them with something that's kind of dissatisfied them. Right. Okay. So I'm thinking of one last thing I wanted to ask you about, and it's the idea of uh, this generation of these nuns, N-O-N-E-S. It's these uh, ex-Christians or ex-Catholics these people who have kind of left a religious affiliation for a variety of reasons, who would maybe call themselves atheists, maybe call themselves agnostics, um, maybe just call themselves apathetic, but they they held a religion at some point. They may have been faithful, uh, Bible-believing, church-going Christians. They may have been really fired up Christians in, in their youth groups and in the universities, and they've gone off and they've had kids, and for whatever reason... Um, or even earlier in, in universities is often a time when people lose faith. But these people who who held some kind of faith, who now would have would consider none to be their affiliation, so would have no religious affiliation. Do you think we approach this kind of a person differently than an atheist or an agnostic? Do you think there's something else we need to do when approaching somebody who has been religious, quote unquote, and has has quit? Yeah, well, so there are actually two groups here. So one is called the nun, as you've said. The other is called the dun. And so the duns are people who are typically from a religious background, and then they've decided they're now done with organized religion. And often that is because they've been burnt by the church or used up by the church. Uh, that The nun group may include some people from that background, but it also increasingly includes people who have no religious background at all and no familiarity with organized religion. They never were of and identifying with any religious group. They're just uninterested in it. Um, so these are somewhat different groups because the Duns typically do come from a religious or a Christian background. And if you want to present your understanding of Christianity to them, you probably, uh, there is some shared framework of understanding, but they will also have probably some misunderstandings based upon uh, their experiences. The nuns, many of them will have no religious background at all. Uh, this kind of hit me close to 20 years, I guess it was 20 years ago this year, I was living in London 
Uh, and um, England, of course, is, is very secular. The church attendance is, I think, 4% or less on a Sunday morning. Um, and they had on at Easter, on BBC Radio, they had on a vicar from the Anglican Church explaining what Easter was, because most of the listeners on BBC don't even know what Easter is. Like, they don't know what this is about. They don't know that it was about a guy named Jesus who died and rose from the dead. So they actually had to explain that. So if you're interacting with a nun like that, you can't assume a lot, right? It's it's going to be a very different context. It's really what we would call a post-Christian context. And in many respects, that is bringing us back to the situation of the early church, where Christianity was a minority, and diff- people had different views and were not particularly interested in Christian views in particular. And there was a lot of work to be done to build that common groundwork of understanding with them and interest before we could share the gospel. So... I think the question we have to figure out is, am I dealing with a nun? Am I dealing with a dun? What is their background, understanding, experience of the church, if any? And then be able to kind of meet their concerns and interests as you go based upon that understanding. And again, that brings us back to that initial conversation in the pub. You get to know those things by having conversations with people and building relationships. Right. So if a person is, is a, a nun who, or sorry, if a person is a dun who maybe had some misconceptions about something in their faith background, you can approach that differently than you would somebody who, right, has no idea what Easter even is. Yeah, for sure. You know, or somebody, uh, they, they came from a non-denominational charismatic church, uh, you'd interact with them differently than somebody who was a, a done, but they came from a Catholic background, right? Because you're going to have to be attentive to what what does each one of them understand the church to be? What does each one of them understand authority to be? How do they interpret scripture and so on? And you'll have to address those considerations accordingly. So it really is important that we understand who people are and where they're coming from so that we can be most effective in meeting their objections and their concerns. Right. And that comes right back around to that conversation in the public. You said, right. You don't learn about what, who a person is or where they're at unless you begin to have a conversation with them at the very basic relationship building, uh, level, building that relationship for the relationship itself. Right. Exactly true. Great. Well, I think that's uh, good for us here. I want to thank you. And I want you to give us an idea of where people can find out more about you. Where can they go to find more about uh, Randall Rouser? I have a website, randallrouser.com. So R-A-N-D-A-L-R-A-U-S-E-R.com. I've been blogging there for 10 years now. I've written 11 books, I believe, including three co-authored ones. Those are available on Amazon. I I'm on Twitter, as I mentioned briefly. So that's my social media profile. Uh, You can also find me in Edmonton, Alberta, if you're ever in the neighborhood. (laughs) You want to give your address for the listeners to just come and and knock on your door and try some uh, door-to-door evangelization? Well, they can they can try the seminary. I teach at Taylor Seminary in South Edmonton, so feel free to drop by the seminary and say hello. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your time. This has been fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Albert. Good chatting with you. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation I had with Randall Rouser as much as I had having the conversation with Randall Rouser. I find him always very interesting and insightful whenever I get to hear him speak, and hopefully you feel the same way. 
If you like this show, please make sure to rate it and leave a review on the iTunes podcast store. It would be very helpful for exposing new people to the show and raising the profile, and it helps new people to find it if they're looking for a Catholic podcast. Please subscribe to it in Apple, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, or wherever else you find the podcast. Make sure you like The Cordial Catholic on Facebook and visit the website at www.thecordialcatholic.com to see my blog and show notes and more information about the show and what I'm up to. You can find me on Twitter at cordialcatholic and email me at cordialcatholic at gmail.com. This week, I have a new patron to thank. Thank you, Stephen M., for your unbelievable generosity in supporting this show. It is 100% listener-supported, and I really appreciate people like Stephen who are making it possible to make this show. So, huge thank you, Stephen. And if you want to help support the show, visit patreon.com slash cordialcatholic to find out how you can give to help support this podcast. It's really an amazing feeling to think there are people out there who actually support and appreciate this work and want to keep it going. So, huge thank you. I hope you enjoyed this week's show, and we'll see you again in a a week. God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.